Welcome to Voices, a podcast from the Institute for Human Rights and Business. Here, we're seeking to elevate the range of perspectives on the role of business in the world and in people's everyday lives. Hello, everybody. This is Francesca Fairben from the Institute for Human Rights and Business. And today I'm talking to Moeta Ilikud. Moeta, who moved from Rulja in China, East Turkestan, as a child to Norway. Her parents were refugees from the uh, Chinese regime. And um, Moeta was brought up in Bergen, Norway, and now works for the Uyghur Transitional Justice Database while um, studying for a master's in international law. Welcome, Moeta. Thank you, Francesca. Perhaps just to begin with, you can tell us a little bit about the situation with Uyghurs in China and the Uyghur Transitional Justice Database. Sure. Uh, Uyghur Transitional Justice Database is an ongoing project that focuses on the um, registration of the disappeared and extrajudicially uh, interned Uyghurs in East Turkestan. Uh, we're the largest database uh, documenting those atrocities that's been committed by the Chinese Communist Party towards the Uyghurs and other Turkic population. So what we do is basically gather data about this persecution and we produce report based on our data. And uh, most of our data are gathered through, uh, for example, online information platforms, as well as testimonies given by family members, friends and colleagues of those who are detained. And for each testifier, we create over 60 data points, which makes our research particularly deep. Um, Per our latest statistic, we have registered uh, more than 6,000 testimonies of people who went missing, detained in camps, sentenced into prison or died in camps. And we do have a satellite team that documents the geolocations. We have so far documented the geolocations of more than 200 re-education camps, uh, prisons, pre-trial detention centers, and prison farms. And there are some horrible findings among those statistics. We found that a total of 147 camps have forced labor factories inside or near the camps. And at least um, 42 camps have crematoriums located around the camps. And uh, a total of 147 prisons or detention centers were newly built or expanded during 2017 to 2020, meaning that the existing detention centers had no more capacity for the mass arrest that uh, took place in the region in 2017. So you said you've got 6,000 testimonies. Of course, there are many, many hundreds of thousands of weeks currently detained and or missing or have been detained in the past. You touched there on the 147 camps that have factories next to them where forced labour is used. There are also, I believe, Uyghurs moved to factories out of Xinjiang, East Turkestan, into other areas of China to conduct labour. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that, because I believe you've got some figures on on the number of prisoners who are moved across the country to work Mm -hmm. elsewhere. Sure. The Uyghur forced labour issue came into the public domain for the first time in, uh, I think it was in March 2020. The Australian Strategy Policy Institute published its report called Cells, and the report has identified 83 international companies that are allegedly 
directly or indirectly benefiting from the use of Uyghur workers outside the region through a um, state-sponsored labor transfer program. And this report estimates that more than 80,000 Uyghurs were transferred to work in factories across China under conditions that strongly suggest forced labor. And interestingly, as this estimation tended to be very conservative, so uh, the actual statistics are expected to be far higher than 80,000. And in late 2018, uh, news reports showed that internment camps in East Pakistan were expanding, accompanied by a vast system of forced labor that involved not only those people who were interned, but also those who had been released from the camps. There were quite a lot of reports about regional governments implementing programs that requiring that at least one person from each household has to be subjected to state-sponsored labor transfers in the name of um, poverty elevation. And according to the CCP's official report, the government has employed 2.6 million minority citizens in the name of surplus labor initiatives, relocating them to factories across the countries. And the CCP's report presents that there is a 46.1% increase in the number of minority citizens in East Turkestan transferred outside of their hometowns for work. It also states that, that they have employed another 440,800 minority citizens through other labor transfer uh, or labor programs in 2019. And uh, in some, this constitutes more than 23% of the minority population in the region. Okay. And by the way, anyone who wants to, they can find a link to that ASPI report you refer to and to other reports on the IHRB website where this podcast is posted. You touched there briefly on that ASPI report. Now they mention 80 brands. I just want to talk a little bit about what it is that that is being made in these forced labor factories. And it is, it is anything. In fact, it's wider than factories, right? It's from raw materials to finished products. I mean, those 80 brands that will be electronics for phones, for cars, it'd be manufactured goods, toys, clothes, even human hair, I understand. And then, you know, back to the raw commodities that go into those things. And a large percentage of the world's cotton comes from China, Xinjiang, East Turkestan, um, with a question mark over the people working on those farms. Okay, so, so perhaps maybe I can ask you a bit more about um, what you know about those sectors of forced yeah. labour. Uh, the scope of forced labour is uh, enormous. Uh, it's a widespread abuse and it involves um, a lot of industries like textile in- industries, clothes, hair products, yarn, tomato products, Polysilicon and much else, just as you mentioned. Um, Polysilicon has been one of the recent findings. Um, China is the world's largest producer of uh, solar-grade polysilicon, and over 50% of the country's production takes place in East Turkestan. Sorry, just for those who don't know, polysilicon is the main commodity used in solar panels for heating for renewable energy. There has been an expansion of the energy sector in China in the recent years, and the polysilicon manufacturers work with the Chinese government to make use of ethnic minority groups for forced labor, and often receiving financial incentives. 
in the past uh, couple of years, media reports and academic reports have uh, shown that factories frequently engage in coercive recruitment, which limits workers' freedom of movement and communication, subject workers to constant surveillance, religious retribution, physical violence, exclusion from community and social life, and threaten family members. And hair products is another example. China produces more than 80% of the global markets products made by here, and it is the world's largest exporter of these products. CNN reported in 2020 that a 13-ton shipment of beauty products suspected to have been made of human hair and was seized by the U.S. Customs and Border Protection Officers at the Port of New York. So here we're talking about 30 tons of human hairs, and you can imagine the scope of this mass internment given the amount. The same applies to China's textile industry, electronics, cars, and a lot more. Dr. Adrian Zen's research found that one of the yarn manufacturers in China, 90% of their staffs are ethnic minorities, labeled as rural surplus laborers. And their own website states that a large number of rural surplus laborers are idled at home, which brings um, hidden dangers to public security. And this manufacturer is actually a part of an official training initiative that, that um, subjects workers to centralized programs such as military drill, thought transformation, and de-extremication. Once employed, staffs are subjected to intensive ongoing um, political indoctrination, including oath-wearing sessions and mandatory written reports designed to establish correct values. State propaganda reports notes that the entire families lives in this company's dormitories. While the parents work, the children uh, has to attend preschools that's set up by the manufacturer. And this kind of close cooperation actually creates great benefits for those factories and manufacturers. Because in 2018 alone, this company has received over half a billion RMB, which is uh, probably about 70 million dollars in government subsidies for training and employing minorities. Uh, and besides, I think what's mostly important to highlight here is that these people who falls into the category of surplus laborer, majority of them actually has a well-established career before their detention, because per our statistic, the majority of the detainees have studied in higher education or professional training, and those who are mostly targeted in this persecution are professors, scholars, writers, journalists, artists, businessmen, and religious leaders. And the average age of this internees in our data set is 42, which demonstrates that the uh, majority of them would not normally be enrolled in such job training programs. Right. Yeah, exactly. And then I guess beyond that, commodity companies, manufacturing companies, and so on, buying down their supply chain, there are other companies that are intentionally or unintentionally complicit in maintaining the suppression of the Uyghur population, such as, for example, Western tech companies selling facial recognition technology, which is deployed across the state, I believe, to monitor citizens or at various checkpoints, which I believe happen every kilometre or quarter of a kilometre in, in cities across, across the state. 
So if we just have a think now possibly about what companies outside China can do in order to ensure human rights due diligence, in order to ensure there is no forced labor in their supply chain, either through the manufacturing or through the commodities they buy. And for the commodities, it can be very difficult if you're trading, particularly if they're traded on the international market, to really ensure where they come from, because you're often trading in theoreticals, right? And, and for that, I can point people towards the commodity trading guidance, which will help commodity trading companies um, implement the UN guiding principles for business and human rights. Um, that's commodity-trading.org. But for companies outside China, perhaps you could talk a little bit about what they can do and then possibly come to any companies that you know of that have taken corrective action um, so that other companies can take examples from that. Um, in uh, Yes, in terms of uh, civil society response, um, the coalition to end Uyghur forced labor was launched about two years ago. And the coalition has been calling on all companies to exit um, East Turkestan at every level of their supply chain, from raw materials to finished products to prevent the use of forced labor of Uyghurs and uh, other groups in other facilities and to end their relationship with uh, suppliers supporting forced labor system. Um, because given the scope of this persecution, there is um, a grave risk that companies across sectors are uh, benefiting from the system. Industries across sectors are at risk of being complicit in this ongoing genocide, and it is practically impossible to operate in the region in accordance with UN guidelines on business and human rights. And there are no valid means for companies to verify that any workplace in the region is free of forced labor. And there is nothing they can do to prevent the use of forced labor because it is a state-sponsored program. And then given the intense level of surveillance uh, methodologies such as worker interviews or audits are extremely challenging to take place and it cannot generate reliable information. No worker can speak uh, candidly to factory audits or auditors about forced labor or other human rights issues without placing themselves and their families at risk of brutal retaliation. And given the pervasive scope of the abuse, buyers therefore need to operate on the assumption that all products produced in part or in whole in the region are at a high risk of being tainted by forced labor. So therefore, the only way corporations can ensure that they're not complicit in the government's repression is to fully exit the region and move their supply chain. Uh, so this is what I believe businesses can do. Uh, and however, the primary responsibility of upholding human rights lies with the government. And uh, predominantly, uh, most governments have regulated their uh, domestic businesses and their labor practices with different, uh, probably different level of seriousness and practicality. But uh, what states has continuously failed is to regulate their um, extraterritorial human rights practices taking part of the global supply chain. And this is, of course... Uh, um, due to the complexity of single jurisdiction and the diversifications of the actors involved 
involved with uh, probably various economic interests. And uh, on the other hand, uh, international regulations such as ILO, uh, UNGP, and OECD has also failed because of its voluntary nature. So um, I would say that uh, the non-binding standards and guidelines leave those companies to uh, shirk their responsibilities without consequences. And uh, given the situation's complexity, it's difficult to uphold a single actor responsible for the poor working conditions as multiple actors were involved in passing work down in the supply chain. Um, so I would argue that uh, a binding global standard on human rights due diligence is a necessary step to enhance responsible businesses around the world in terms of uh, prevention, mitigation, and uh, remediation. So uh, to sum up, my opinion is that governments, employers, trade unions, and businesses should come together and adopt a new international legally binding standard that obliges governments to require businesses to conduct human rights due diligence in the global supply chain. I think that a lot of governments are introducing uh, legislation. The UK has the Modern Slavery Act, Australia has the Modern Slavery Act, France has the Loi de Vigilance, and the European Union has the draft uh, mandatory human rights due diligence, which will hopefully go some way to legislating for companies to implement human rights due diligence down their supply chain. I guess one of the consequences of very complex and long supply chains is that companies some, sometimes aren't aware that products that or elements of their products are coming from areas where there's a high risk of forced labor. And so I guess um, increasing their visibility down their supply chain is an important part of the process in understanding and implementing human rights due diligence. The other thing, of course, is those who are investing in companies, in commodities that are possibly at risk of using forced labor in China can use instruments such as the principles for responsible investment. So it's important for the financiers as well, I think, to ensure human rights diligence in their investments. And I might just add, I know that you've worked with companies, but that's confidential, but there are companies that have taken corrective action. So it is possible to do that, to improve human rights due diligence in your supply chain, take corrective action. And I guess I would point people towards the Enrico Forced Labour Campaign website, where you could probably find more information about that and also on the call to action. Moeta, thank you so much for talking to me today and best of luck with your database work and with your international law career. Thank you. Thank you, Francisco.